2: Thanks for taking this meeting with me.
0: No problem, but I can't stress enough. I'm looking for fresh ideas, new stories, things that nobody has done before.
2: (laughs) And have I got one for you. All right, let's hear it. Okay, it's called Overcoming the Monster. Basically, there's a monster menacing a village, but unfortunately there's a hero in the village. But still, the monster is so big and vicious, there's like no way the hero can overcome it. So right there, the audience is worried, you know, but then he does. The hero kills the monster.
0: You're kidding, right? Why? That's basically the plot of everything. Yeah, like what? It goes at least as far back as Beowulf.
2: Oh no no no! This is not a wolf. It's a monster. So.
0: No no no! Beowulf is the hero. He's a guy. He kills the monster Grendel.
2: That's so weird because Grendel is a you know it's a less scary name.
0: We're getting off the subject here. Look, kid, your idea is not new. It's Jaws. It's The Exorcist. It's Godzilla. It's Alien. It's Dracula. It's Star Wars. I I haven't heard of any of these. What are you, some kind of feral child? Kid, I said, give me something new.
2: Wait, my monster is the product of incest. Chinatown. Who keeps reliving the same day over and over. Groundhog
0: Day and that Tom Cruise movie.
2: But the hero has a teacher who's really tough on him, but for the purpose of making him better.
0: Karate Kid, Officer and a Gentleman, Whiplash.
2: The monster wants to dance, but the father won't let him? Uh, Billy Elliot. That's not fair. Every idea I ever had has already been taken. I feel like I'm trapped on a spaceship with malfunctioning re-entry engines, but there's a guy offering to save me with trumpets. But should I trust him?
0: Gravity and the music man. Look, kid, you're not fooling anybody.
2: Today on the show, does our thirst for new ideas drive us to embrace anything novel? And now the airbender for the last script doctor, Colin McEnroe. Or it
3: might have been the other way around. I might have been the script doctor for the last airbender. I know for a fact I'm not the last airbender. I was like maybe, I don't know, Uh, fourth to last airbender. I've actually never seen that movie. Anyway, uh, today on the show we do want to talk about this notion of novelty in culture. This is kind of a problem that I think is probably more confined to the arts and letters than it is to the sciences, right? In the sciences there actually are breakthroughs, although if you read Thomas Kuhn we know that those breakthroughs, breakthroughs often come at the end of long plateaus in which everybody is basically biting on everybody else's work and then suddenly something really startlingly new happens. You could maybe make the argument that happens in the arts and letters, but you could also make the argument it just does it just doesn't ever happen that that, that everything – well, I'll, I'll let Mark Twain say it. Actually, before I let Mark Twain say it. I won't literally let Mark Twain say it. Um, Let me tell you who's on the show today. Uh, Christopher Booker is uh, joining us by phone from uh, England's West Country, near the city of Bath. He's the founding editor of the British magazine Private Eye and a longtime columnist for the Sunday Telegraph. He's the author of several books, including The Seven Basic Plots, Why We Tell Stories. And I should say, before I even go a a step further, that for like a year or more, I've been saying to the producers here, I want to do a show about this notion that there are only seven plots. And if so, if there really only are seven plots. What are they? Blah, 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 blah. And every time I would do that, people would kind of look at the floor like, I hope he doesn't really make us do that. But then Josh Nalea, our newest producer, he wanted to do Today's Show, which is a little bit more that whole idea of, are we so hungry for something new? Uh, so tired of uh, of the recycling of plots and ideas and tropes and motifs that we We get really excited about anything that at least seems kind of new. So we kind of combine both of those ideas into one show. Joining us from the Audubon Street Studios in New Haven, uh, WNPR's own studios, are Brian Francis Slattery. Uh, He's an editor for the New Haven Review. He's a musician. He's a novelist. His newest book, The Family Hightower, is out right now. Gorman Bichard is sitting right near him in the Audubon Street Studio. Uh, He's a film director, screenwriter, novelist, best known for his independent feature films like Psychos in Love and Friends with Benefits and You Are a A little bit later, uh, my friend David Edelstein will be joining us to talk about this from the film critic's perspective. All right, enough introducing. Now I give you Mark Twain, who said, There's no such thing as a new idea. It is impossible. We simply take a lot of old ideas and put them into sort of a mental kaleidoscope. We give them a turn, and they make new and curious combinations. We keep on turning and making new combinations indefinitely but they are the same old pieces of colored glass that have been in use for all the ages. So Brian Slattery at the risk of putting an overarching cultural theory uh, uh, into your mouth. um, That sounds like something you would say. I mean, to me anyway, it sounds a little bit like one of your basic theories about culture that uh, if you think you have a radically new idea, chances are you just don't understand the ideas that it's based on.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly happy to be on team Twain for that one. Um, but no I I mean I, I definitely agree. I think that like I mean as you know I always go to music. And music is one of those great places where it's you know it's one hybrid form after another that feels very fresh when like you know when the when the elements are recombined. And um I mean I I think though that you can kind of have it both ways. I I don't think it's I don't think it's fair to just point and say well hey you know all he did was take a bunch of old stuff and recombine it and that's not really new. Like I think there's actually some I think there's some real value in in that recombination if it strikes people as new and fresh then you know to some extent it is um but that said i mean there's there is always i think that sense of you know what seems new to you is you know somebody else has been listening to it for a thousand years you know the first time you hear chinese opera it's new to you but it's 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 an ancient tradition
3: um, but yeah and I think twain 's with you, you know, he says we give that kaleidoscope a turn, and it makes a new and curious combination that 's in fact, I think his endorsement of that is art, although Gorman Bashard, before we plunge with Christopher Booker into this whole question of seven basic plots, one thing i 've heard you say one of the advantages I have on this show is that I know quite a few of the guests fairly well i 've heard you say in the past that in movie making. Um, plot is so structured and formalized that a lot of times to your wife's everlasting annoyance if you're watching a movie together um, on television or something you can actually tell her within five minutes or so when certain pivotal moments are going to occur. Flesh that out for us.
4: I, I, I think it goes down to it is the same story over and over again especially when you're talking about Hollywood features. Occasionally an independent film will bring in something new and unique and that's when you know, I I, I I love. I mean, I think I've said to you probably on Facebook my favorite film of the year was Ida, uh, the Polish film, uh, because there was just there were scenes in that film that just took me so by surprise. I did not see them coming, despite the fact that it really was an Ingmar Bergman film from 1959 that he just happened to never make. Um, so you know, is it you know it, it, it's, it's it fresh? No. But there are unique aspects to it. But the average Hollywood film, I think, usually within by the end of the opening credits, I can pretty much tell you the entire plot structure.
3: (laughs) And I mean, I'm just going to press you on that a little bit more. So, in other words, within the world of screenwriting, there are terms of art about certain things that have to happen, and within the industry, those things have to happen within certain time intervals. Oh,
4: absolutely! You have to have your plot point at the end. Your plot point gets you from the end of Act One into Act Two basically has to happen at the 27-minute mark. And, and very honestly, if you watch a Hollywood film, usually between 26 and 28 minutes, it is there. If it isn't there, if it goes beyond to about 35 minutes, usually you've lost interest in the film. And, and unfortunately, it, 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 that, that, that sounds extreme, but it's so true.
3: All right, so uh, Gorman's talking about movies. Brian is talking about uh, music and, by implication, the rest of culture. Christopher Booker's uh, joining us, too. As I say, his book is called The Seven Basic Plots. This is something that, an idea that I've I've heard variants of it lots of times, but he, as they say, wrote the book. Um, So, uh, Christopher Booker, uh, first of all, I mean, how literally do you mean us to take – the, the phrase, seven basic plots, there are only seven basic plots. How absolutely uh, do you expect us to, to, to accept that as a truth? Colin? Yes, hi, you're on the air. Yeah.
5: yeah, I've been listening to you guys <laughs> with great entertainment. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not, what I'm not saying, and I make this clear right, at the it's a book I spent 34 years writing, <laughs>
6: so
5: I gave it a lot of thought. Uh, and what I'm trying to say is that uh, storytelling, which, after all, one of the things that all human beings have spent a lot of their time since time immemorial doing, imagining these sequences of events. What I'm saying is, if you look very, very, very carefully in the right way, as I would say, at storytelling, what you find is that there are seven really, really underlying structures to stories which start off. Uh, setting up an expectation which can be realized in a particular way until it comes to a great resolution at the end. And there are those seven shapes which you find all the way through storytelling, right from the the earliest myths to the latest Hollywood film. Uh, But I'm not saying, of course, it would be quite insane to say that every story in the world can be fitted into one of those seven plots. What I'm saying is, if you understand how these plots work, how these shapes work, how they catch our imagination, how from the beginning we know that something is going to have to happen before we can be satisfied. You talked about overcoming the monster. It's one of the commonest and most ancient of plots. And it's not so much that the monster is threatening, this terrifying figure is threatening a community. It's not just a village. It can be a whole kingdom. It can be the whole universe. As in Star Wars, you know that in the end, uh, if you're watching Star Wars, uh, he's taken the princess captive, and you know that what's going to happen is that Luke Skywalker and his mates are going to have to slay that monster. And you know that that's the only way this story can end satisfactorily. So what I'm saying is that once you start looking at stories in this way and the the basic plots which i'm talking about are amazingly detailed in their structure and you can find hundreds of examples from every age what you're looking at is the language of storytelling which will then enable you it's the door it's to the door to the underworld which can see what's going on underneath which is what fires our imagination which has inspired thousands of individual stories some stories have got several of these plots going on at the same time. Lord of the Rings is one of the few stories which has all seven of the plots in. But the point is that what you're looking at is the language in which storytelling is un- comes up from our unconscious. The unconscious of the storyteller taps into the unconscious of the, of the audience or the reader. And that is what enables you to see why is it that the human race, since the beginning of time, has, as one of its l- main preoccupations, liked to let its each individual human being has allowed has has been entertained by instructed by illuminated by the pleasure of seeing a pattern unfold that they sort of unconsciously recognize and why is it that we have this capacity to imagine things that have never happened or you know imaginary events uh what 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 purpose is this serving what evolutionary purpose is this serving in the life of the human race. That, that's the, the basic thesis.
3: So, Christopher Booker, I'm going to play a game with the other two guests. You've not been prompted on this, but um, uh, I'll, give, I'll give them uh, your, other, uh, your other six plots, and they can just give me their examples. So uh, the next one on the list, uh, uh, Brian, you go first, is Rags to Riches. The poor protagonist acquires things such as power, wealth, and a mate before losing it all and then maybe gaining it back back upon growing as a person, although I think there's actually sort of a variant to that. So give a, give me your favorite rags-to-riches plot. This may be unfair to do to guests. Uh,
1: the Godfather. Okay, perfect,
3: perfect. Uh, Gorman, how about yours? Oh,
4: God. <coughs> I, I would probably say um, uh, Mr. D. the Town.
3: Yeah. For me, I think – see, I, I feel as though – um, this is th- that there are only really two American plots, and one of them is uh, is this one. It's essentially Citizen Kane. It's essentially The Godfather. Uh, it's uh, the Great Gatsby. Right, uh, you go from rags to riches, but some, there's still some primal wound that doesn't get healed. Uh, we just tell that story over and over again. Uh, I think. All right, the next one is the quest. The protagonist and some companions set out to acquire an important object or to get to a location. You can't use Lord of the Rings. Facing uh, many obstacles and temptations along the way. Uh, all right, Gorman, you go first on that one.
4: Wow, the quest. I, uh, Leon the Professional by Luc Bresson, which is my favorite action film.
3: <laughs> all right, that was fairly <laughs> a recherche. How about you, Brian? All uh, right, Raiders of the Lost Ark. All right, okay. <laughs> my uh,
4: quest was revenge,
3: so. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's see, Voyage and Return. The protagonist goes to a strange land, and after overcoming the threats it poses to him or her, returns with nothing but experience.
1: Uh, Brian, you, you have to go first. Oh my god! um I'm trying to think of something that isn't a movie all of a sudden wait, wait well, come come back to me come all right back to okay me. great
3: <laughs> thanks <laughs> well, there's an epic poem, and we I mean, this is basically the the odyssey right, um, right. so if, if it's uh so if it's the Odyssey, then it's also oh brother, where art thou um which is basically the odyssey um but anyway, so we understand what a quest movie is. Oh, that's Voyage and Return, right? Oh, yes. Voyage and Return. So comedy, well, we'll skip over. Everybody knows what a comedy is. Tragedy, everybody understands what a tra- tragedy is. And then the last one on his list, list is Rebirth. The protagonist is a villain or otherwise unlikable character who redeems him herself over the course of the story. Okay, I have one, but I'll go, I'll go first to give you guys more time to think. That basically is the plot of The Music Man, which I think is the other basic American plot that somehow or other you know, somehow or other, the person you didn't, and didn't entirely trust, you had reason not to trust, turns out somehow or other uh, to be reborn, to be changed, and, and to become trustworthy, which is sort of Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton is basically both Rags to Riches and Rebirth. But anyway, uh, you guys have a, a Rebirth one? Go ahead. Oh, it's man.
4: so on the spot you should have signed <laughs> those tapes. I know it's wow.
3: totally, it, was, it was totally unfair <laughs> as a pop quiz totally no, unfair I mean, in,
1: some, in some ways I, I mean I think of that plot as one of those ones that shows up in lots of mo- like lots of things right, right. In movies and books where like a character who you don't you know who you're, you're told not to trust turns out to you know turns out to be extremely trustworthy right Well, I mean, save uh, the day yeah. you know it's like it doesn't have to be that they're the, the, the starve. Han Solo is a yeah. introduced to us I was going right. to say like Star Wars has like three of those right. you know
4: I mean, my favorite would uh, – I'm going to use a very strange little indie film mm-hmm. uh, of recent years, which is probably my favorite movie of the past five or so years. And it would be this mo- movie called Starlet, which was a big hit at uh, Sundance. And it stars this young girl who's basically a porno actress. But you learn you, – you really start – you really see the other side of her as she uh, befriends this elder, elderly woman and just really m- – m- helps this woman, you know, uh, get over the loss of her own daughter. So and me, it's a beautiful film. So,
3: Gorman, let me ask you this. When you saw that movie, did you did you feel I'm seeing something that speaks to me in a really new way, that this really is new and fresh to me? Or did you think I'm seeing something that I've basically seen before, but it's being, you know, the voice of it, the coloration of it is is different enough so that I, I'm engaged in a way that I wouldn't otherwise be? I,
4: the latter, definitely. I mean, uh, it's, you know, it's, there's, it's, it's, Screams indie in every way, shape, and form, as you know something you'll read on the reviews of it are oh there's no ending, well, life has no ending until you just you know close your eyes for the last time, uh you know, so that doesn't really bother me uh, yeah, I mean it was very original is it, it was a very original take on an old story
3: and and Brian. You know, as both of you guys are creators. So, um, as as you as you work, whether you're working in music or, or more likely, uh, working uh, as a novelist, are, are you feeling this incredible weight of all the, everything that has come before? Do you are you thinking constantly? Well, I'm not telling the family Hightower. It's kind of a little bit the Godfather. It's kind of a little bit the Great Gatsby. It's kind of, um, or or can you simply? Tell
1: yourself, I'm not. We talked about this a little bit last time you were on. I'm not going to worry about that. Um, I think it's it's mostly the second one, but with a real sense of I'm aware that it's I'm pulling from X, Y, Z, and Q, and that just doesn't bother me all that much. You know, like I'm more. I, I think I'm. Uh, I I figured out at one point that it's better just to cite your sources. You know, and to sort of flag to people that you know in, in case this reminds you of the Godfather, you're right. You know, if this reminds you of this, you know, you're right again. That's that's good. You know, good reading, everybody. <laughs> and, I, I you mean- know, and now, now let's proceed because we're, you know, we're allowed to then take these elements and riff off of them and hopefully come up with something that, you know, still seems new and exciting to you. Colin, cool.
4: when I did my last rock doc, I specifically had, was set out to make a rock and roll version of Errol Morris's Fog of War because no one had done that in the <laughs> rock and roll genre.
3: I can't believe nobody's done that before. It's such an obvious Fog idea. I, uh,
4: yes, I, I know. And, and I wanted to just basically have one voice through the entire film and let someone take us through his life. Uh. And uh, that was, you know, that was very much my inspiration for that.
3: So, um, Christopher Booker, there must be a certain amount of pushback that you encounter. Writing a book like The Seven Basic Plots, Why We Tell Stories, um, obviously it's a salute to, a celebration of, and an embrace of – the human storytelling impulse, the narrative impulse that goes back to our days sitting around the the campfire. But there are some people, possibly even critics, who might read that as kind of a reductionist argument that if that's all art amounts to is just a a saying over and over again uh, of these seven basic structures, that that's uh, that's a a rather puny assessment of what creativity is. Did you get that pushback, first of all?
5: (laughs) Yeah, of course. But um, the great thing about what marks out the great storytellers is that they can tell a basic plot story, but each time they do it, they do it in in, in a brilliantly fresh individual way. And you you, you don't have to be sitting there thinking, oh, this is a Voyage and Return story. I know how it ends. Mm -hmm. Uh, What you think is a wonderfully entertaining story. And at the end of it, you say, yeah, that was a really good version of the voyage, Voyage and Return story. It was a really brilliant comedy. Uh, any of the basic plots has been uh, all the great stories of the world are shaped by these plots, but we don't, we don't we don't we're not conscious of it at the time What we're doing what we're seeing is that the fact that a really good storyteller whoever it is a movie maker or whatever Is using an underlying structure to dress it up in entirely new clothes, and that's what grabs us uh, So it's really just a matter of standing back and saying yes, well, what's really going on here? What's the storyteller doing? Why are we the audience? Why do we respond to it in the way we do? And you, uh, it, 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 actually shows up some of the greatest storytellers uh, in a new light. I mean, Shakespeare was was every time Shakespeare wrote a play, it was it was on a basic plot. Uh, usually, it was a comedy or it's a tragedy. But but the fact is that each of his pl- each of his plays has its own completely individual language and and style, and you're gripped by it because deep down there's something going on in your deeper unconscious mind which responds to the pattern that's unfolding. But you don't, uh, you don't think this is reductionism. On the contrary, it's, it, it liberates us to see why great storytellers are, are, are what they are. They're towering figures in, in the whole history of the human race.
3: It, it just seems as though, um, and Brian, I'll let you start out on this one. It just seems, though, that, that, I mean, everything that Christopher is saying right now seems absolutely true. And yet it somehow or other smashes up against the idea of what we have, cre- uh, the idea we have of what creativity is or what it feels like. Right. The idea of the creative spark uh, is I am going to make something nobody's ever seen before. I am going to do something, you know, that will shock the world. Um, <laughs> and and I mean, it just seems like that's really it, are our creative people essentially essentially deluding themselves so that they can keep going.
1: No, that's a great that's a great question. I mean, I I think that there's there's certainly a group of people I think who. You know especially you know when they you know when, when they first start out thinking you know I I want I want to have a sort of statement to make I mean there there's certainly people who have taken who have you know sussed out those seven basic plots and make it there's make it their mission to sort of tear them apart right like I mean I think of like Kafka is a great example of I'm going to set up one of these stories and then make sure that it doesn't happen mm-hmm. so like whatever it is that you're expecting I'm gonna make it take this left turn and it's gonna go off into this thing um, and you know, on one hand, you would say, you know, that's great—you've exploded this storytelling form. But on the other hand, it, you know, you could also make the argument that that's just another version of that same story, you know, and playing with the same set of expectations, you know. And it's and it's also what it makes them very satisfying, you know. And then, uh, so I, I don't think that, um, I, I mean, I, I can see how, and I, and I think when, when I'm, I'm now the ripe old age of forty. But I remember being a you know a younger, angrier person, and having that same sense of like you know there's got to be something new to do out there, and um, then feeling this sort of sense of liberation of not being particularly worried about that, um, and just sort of doing your thing, and sort of acknowledging the the, the giant series of shoulders that you're standing on. I think you,
3: you can see the most obvious place where you can see where the, the the other impulse play itself out. That impulse of of somehow or other rejecting those shoulders and trying to do something new is in the fine arts. Just walk through a museum in chronological order. Really, yeah, At a absolutely. certain point, the reason that there is a Barnett Newman or a Cy Twombly or a Motherwell or whatever, and then from there on to Saul LeWitt and Carl Andre and conceptual artists, is that artists did essentially say, you know what? I really do have to try to do something that isn't the last guy's thing. Uh, that I and in some ways, that's the complaint people wind up having. Uh, yeah,
1: is yeah. Go ahead. I think there's also a way that I mean, especially, uh, you know, especially in the last few years, people have sort of, you know, I, I think, but this has probably been true all the time. Now that I now that I think about it, but there's always that sense of like, yeah, well, these stories have been around <laughs> forever, but what does it mean to us now? And I think that, like, that, that sort of question of, like, what does it mean in our modern context is what constantly makes, you know, these, these older ideas ready for refreshment.
3: Which is why House of Cards is essentially Richard III. Let me take a call from uh, Michael in Cheshire. Hi, Michael.
7: Hi, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I wanted to say that it seems maybe just a little bit in the conversation we're sort of conflating um, novelty in terms of thematics and novelty in terms of style. Because although I would agree with the notion of, you know, seven basic plots, I think you definitely can in the, in, in, in the art still have um, novelty in the way that we uh, – people seeing things in a different way, using materials that have been around before. You know, one, thing to, one of one things of hip-hop, for example, right? I mean, at least for me, when hip-hop came out, I'd never heard anything quite like it. I mean, it may be that, you know, it's based in funk or the blues or whatever. That was a totally different way of experiencing the world. Same thing in terms of films, say, like Wings of Desire. I mean, I don't know. For me, when I first saw that movie, I'd never seen anything quite like that, you know, back in, in 1987. Now, I once had a professor in college who said that, you know, styles change when there's something new to say in terms of perceiving the world in a different way um, based on different influences that have come in. So one thing of James Joyce with, you know, sort of a new epistemological approach and also the influence of the unconscious and, you know, combining history and Eastern philosophy, et cetera. So I think that with the with the way things are going today in terms of the way people communicate and blogs and, you know, using our cell phones, who the heck knows, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the road what kind of um, novelty
3: that might produce. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to um, decide whether I think Gorman loves Wings of Desire or hates Wings of Desire. It's one of the two. I'm going to go with hates. Oh, no, I You're, love uh, Wings of Desire. I, I, oh, my I God. Roll the dice and I got Would it probably have
4: been Probably in my top 20.
3: But his point, Gorman, is, I assume, what keeps you going, right? And in other words, why, why keep making new art? Probably exactly because of what he said.
4: Well, in my case, what keeps me going is I really like telling stories, uh, but I do try to find fresh takes on old genres. Like I said, I when I made every everything, I knew I was basically ripping off Fog of War, but I was trying to do a rock and roll fun, you know, completely different take, fresh take on it. Uh, when I did Color Me Obsessed, I was like, I I know that there have been. Uh, talking head documentaries, uh, but I don't, they had never really been done for uh, rock bands where you never heard any music and never saw the band and you had everyone else tell the story. It was sort of like taking the whole, um, you know, uh, oral, you know, uh, the oral stories that you read in books and put, doing the film version of it. Um, you know, so I, I think it's, it's for me, it's always like trying to find a new take on it. But I, I realize that I'm still recycling all of the old versions but trying to put them together in a different way trying to even sometimes put puzzle pieces together that don't actually fit but you know might just be interesting
3: uh, we're gonna take a break matthew tweets to us i think we fetishize the new to our own detriment uh, i'll take the well wrought over the never before done any day we'll take a quick break and we'll come back
0: i want you not something new is what she said And he lifted up his head Looked her in the eye Said I think I understand For the first time in my life That it's all Been done Before And it's all Done before? Ain't it beautiful? It's all.
3: All right. We're back. Um, and we're talking about the um, – the well, actually, the, just to steal from that tweet, since nothing is new anyway, uh, mm-hmm. the, the degree to which we fetishize the new uh, and, and perhaps privilege it over – other kinds of things, or, or, or at least given the fact that it's so hard to create anything truly new, uh, whether in fact uh, things that are, are new draw us. Um, although, and I should say our guests right now are Gorman Bouchard, uh, get on Kickstarter and uh, check out his uh, documentary, his plan for a documentary about Lydia Loeffler. He's made many other rock documentaries as well as uh, feature films as well, and written novels. Brian Francis Slattery, musician and novelist, and Christopher Booker about to rejoin us in a second. He's the uh, f- founding editor of the British magazine Private High and the author of The seven- Basic plots why we tell stories. So the argument could be made that um, and Brian I'll start with you that n- we really don't want new things that much or at least when given new things we tend to flip out and so 1913 is the most off example you've got for Stravinsky's Rite of Spring which not only in terms of its music its choreography its costumes it just blew people's minds but not in a good way right the audience went nuts there were fist fights. you know same year you have Schoenberg's uh, Scandal concert same kind of thing really really new music people are like going nuts and, and, and unpleasantly nuts um, and around that time, too, as some of the modernist painters become to come forward, like Kandinsky and Clay and stuff, they do this famous Munich show. And they, they, they had to buy each other's work, basically, because nobody's buying work that would, you know, in aggregate now fetched a quarter of a billion dollars on, on the market. Uh, they all had to buy it from <laughs> one another. So, Brian, in some ways you can make the argument, well,
1: you know, we say we really want to, you know, we say give me something new, but we don't mean it. I feel like I have this conversation all the time, um, you know, between, you know, because people, people will say, you know, Hollywood movies have become so formulaic, and that like, but then, you know, millions of people go see them and say that they like them, you know, all of, all of that sort of thing. And um, I mean, I think that I, you know, this, this is one of those moving targets for me. I think it's, you know, if you ask me tomorrow, I'd have a completely different answer to the question. <laughs> but I think there's probably a sense of, you know, people like, people like things to be kind of new. You know they, but they, but they also want sort of a guide. And the, you know, the more new things you throw at somebody, the more that they want a guide. You know, to to sort of help them through it. You know, whatever whatever that is. You know, whether it's in, in a book, maybe it's a character. You know, who you get to who you get to ride along with. You know, in 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 music, it might be as simple as like, well, I, I recognize that drum beat. So whatever else is going on is fine because I have this drumbeat to you know to keep me down, and. You know, I, I imagine that, you know, a successful artist is, is you know, or, the, or the art that seems to me to be successful is, is the stuff that sort of gives you a sense that, it, that there's something very fresh going on, but also some way to sort of like get into it and navigate it and then get out of it again.
3: So Rothko's saying, well, this is red. You know about red, right? You recognize red. Red is, you know, yeah, you, can, yeah. <laughs> you can cling to that anyway. You know this color. You've right. seen this color before. Right. So Gorman, insofar as, first of all, when you in the past when you have dealt with the most commercial end of the movie making business, I mean, we know how those conversations go, right? I mean, everybody's interested in the last successful thing, I assume, right. and nobody's interested in the new thing.
4: Right. And it, it's it's always bringing it back to the same old thing, especially when you're dealing with Hollywood. Uh, I mean, I would." I, I finally call, started calling them idiot notes uh, because you, you, you take any fresh idea and you would just like like dumb it down uh, to the lowest common denominator. I mean, if, I mean, I honestly, having taken many, many, many meetings in Hollywood, I, I, I don't think there's a company on earth or a, a group of people on earth that have you know less regard for the intelligence of their audience
1: um though you know but even then right sequels eventually you've made one too many sequels right oh,
4: the, when you've made your first sequel you've made one too many sequels
1: you know even even from their own calculation right there's a point where even the audience who says yes give me another transformers movie says i don't want any more transformers movies." they've
4: made a transformer movie <laughs> I, didn't, I, I wasn't aware of that
3: um, Christopher Brooker's back with us. So, Christopher Booker, one of the things we're talking about is the notion that, that, in fact, people don't really want anything new anyway. You know, And uh, I talked about Stravinsky's Rite of Spring and Schoenberg's uh, Scandal concert in 1913. But, you know, it could be anything as new, recent as Elvis or the Beatles, right? The, well, I mean, well, people, it turns out, really wanted Elvis and the Beatles. But there was part of culture that was very freaked out. They'd never seen anything like this before. That it's not necessarily wired into us to be seeking novelty.
5: No, I, you see, I'm old enough to remember the shock of Elvis. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's one of the big moments of so many people's lives, including mine. And and, and as for the Beatles, I mean, the Beatles and Elvis were miles apart, really. But um, both of them were huge, great moments of, of exhilaration that something incredibly new and exciting was happening. I think it happens much less now. It was very exciting to live at that particular period. That's when we entered the modern world, really, back in the late 50s and the early 60s. And the, the mental universe most of us inhabit now, I used to think this when my kids were growing up in the 90s, uh, they were entering a mental universe that came to birth when I was i was a young man. And the values were the same. The tunes changed, but, <laughs> but um, the basic structures that they were finding themselves at home with and very excited by were the ones which came to birth, you know, 60 years ago, 55 years ago.
3: You know, Brian Slattery, one of the last times we had you on, one of the most recent times we had you on, that is, uh, we uh, were talking about why write a novel? Why why does anybody write a novel? Um, and, and I know in getting ready for the show, one of the points that you made was that um, at the time of Joyce, at the time of Ulysses, um, there was this kind of sense, all right, that's everything that can be done with a novel. Uh, there, You know, this is like, not, what else could you ever possibly do? The final statement has been made. And and that that changes too, right? The, the reality is that there may only be seven plots but there are so many different artistic forms
1: yeah I mean and and, I mean but even even that that that's a that's a great case to talk about because you know you say there are so many forms but one of the one of the reasons that that Ulysses felt like maybe this is the end of the novel is that he seemed to have done so many of them in one book Mm -hmm. you know it wasn't just that he wrote one great book it was that he wrote one book that seemed to have you know 50 other great books kind of like shoehorned into it and you know for 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 a couple of decades that there there was a sort of general sense of well here's this guy who sort of you know dropped a huge bomb on the novel and you know what what do we do except kind of sort through the pieces and but you know in in time in time that even even that changed you know there was a there was a famous essay i remember if i remember right called the literature of exhaustion that was talking about how you know ulysses had kind of left not too much to do um afterward And then, you know, a couple of years later, the the Latin American literature got very popular. And then there was an essay called something like the literature of rejuvenation about Mm -hmm. how, you know, this other group of writers, a generation later, has discovered a new way into the novel, you know, that that even Joyce hadn't really thought of. (laughs) And, you know, and then, then everything's back on track again.
4: I think though there are some recent examples. Uh, a visit, a visit from the Goon Squad by uh, Jennifer Egan yeah. was a beautiful example of turning the novel slightly on its ear.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, although I mean, if we parse that very much, I mean Jennifer Egan's book, which is sort of written by written from multiple points of view, skipping around in time. I I, I think we could probably, I mean, it's not jumping into the top of my head right now. I bet you we could find his antecedents uh, pretty easily. Um, I I love that novel, but I didn't really feel like I was reading something startlingly new. Hey, we've got to grab grab a quick break here. When we come back, we'll be joined by critic David Edelstein. Uh, We'll be talking a little bit more specifically as we head into Oscar week uh, about movies and specifically also about the movie Boyhood.
2: Today's show was produced by Josh Nolea, a young man with special abilities growing up with people who are not his actual parents. And me, a workaholic corporate raider who falls in love with a prostitute. Our intern is Adam Blutt. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR The part of Bill Curry was played by Tom Cruise. For show pages, articles, and a short video featuring the Faith Middleton Show staff as a family of kids who get a new governess who's a nun who teaches them to sing, visit WNPR.org. And now back to Colin.
3: Actually, two of our guests are sitting in close proximity to the Faith Middleton Show staff right now, so they may be uh, singing uh, beautiful songs led by Julie Andrews. I'm not really even sure, uh, but they're in New Haven, Gorman Bichard, filmmaker, novelist and screenwriter, currently uh, raising money through Kickstarter for a documentary about Lydia Lovelace, uh, and Brian Francis Slattery, musician, uh, arts editor for the New Haven, Re- no, excuse me, arts editor for the New Haven Independent and editor for the New Haven Review. Uh, his most recent novel is The Family Hightower. Joining us also is America's Greatest Living Film critic David Edelstein uh, with CBS Sunday Morning and NPR's Fresh Air in uh, uh, New York Magazine. So, David Edelstein, first of all, welcome to our conversation.
6: Well, thank you, Colin. I, can I just jump in on Wings of Desire? Because I think that was a very interesting film to mention. Uh, it was mentioned uh, a little while ago as something that seemed uh, authentically new at the time. And uh, I agree, it's it's a wonderful film but it's a really good illustration of what you've been talking about, how nothing is quite as new as it seems. Um, I remember that the beginning, the first half an hour of that movie, seemed very avant-garde. It was drifting around uh, Berlin, and there were strange voices that this angel picked up. But then eventually you saw that it had a point, which was to show that society had become utterly fragmented, at which point the angel falls in love with a beautiful French aerialist and gives up his wings. And it actually turns out, despite its form, to be an incredibly conventional story. I mean, you could go back to myths of people kind of giving up, you know, supernatural beings giving up their wings and falling in love with a mortal. And here, just because it was dressed up in this seemingly formless, artful way, in the end, the audience still wanted the satisfaction of a conventional narrative arc. And the, what was great about that movie is it hit it completely.
3: So you're saying Superman was basically just an angel with a ponytail? Uh, well, speaking. it's been said.
6: Yeah. it's been said.
3: Um, yeah, no. He and Lois had that conversation many times. Give up the superpowers. <laughs> so you know, obviously, there's a, quite a bit of stir. There has been quite a, a bit of stir in a sense right now going into Oscar weekend that that Boyhood uh, is going to take uh, all kinds of awards. And I well, think I don't
6: I- know about that anymore.
3: Oh, really? Has the tide turned?
6: I think the tide has turned. Mm. I think. I think. Hollywood seems to be willing to embrace or eager to embrace Birdman. Oh.
4: Well, yeah,
6: I, th- I think the odds, have, the odds have shifted to Birdman. Well, Maybe Richard Linkletter is a little too outside the process. Maybe he was working in a more formless way, perhaps, than, than people in Hollywood were used to, making time the central character as opposed to uh, uh, you know, a different a kind of protagonist. Maybe yeah. they relate to the self-pity of the main character. I suspect that could be it, too.
3: (laughs) Well, so this illustrates the exact tension that we're talking about right now. So, uh, on the one hand, there's a sense that nothing is really all that new. We're really hungry for something new. And maybe people get very excited walking out of boyhood, feeling that they've seen Michael Apted notwithstanding, that they've Mm -hmm. seen something that they've never seen before. And so that's really great, and and we're going to embrace that. Some people would say fetishize that. And then working against that is the kind of tension that Gorman has uh, alluded to, where you know, sort of conventional, encrusted, calcified Hollywood says, "Well, actually, we don't really want to see anything that new. That actually kind of gets on our nerves." But I mean, David, do you see Boyhood as something? And as a critic who sees so many movies, did you watch out walk out of Boyhood saying, "Well, I'm excited at least on the basis that I've never seen that before"?
6: Well, I'd never seen that before. Insofar as you you you're used to seeing uh, characters age in a, in a work, but you never see them actually literally age. You never see that jump. But I still thought of boyhood as a as a structured, as having a structured narrative for all that. Um, the the whatever Linkletter Linkletter may have seemed to be making it up as he went along, but he had this idea of a father who went from an outsider, kind of a little bit of a ne'er do well, very shapeless life uh becoming a uh becoming a responsible citizen perhaps a little duller uh, a mother who went through all these different husbands and came out feeling as if her life had had gone nowhere and the boy having a sexual coming of age and falling in love for the first time it's not you know again it's not really that new material what was novel was the fact that, you know, the story seemed to be evolving before your eyes. You had the illusion that what was happening was something that was happening in real life, and Richard Linkletter, the filmmaker, was just checking in on life as it went along. Again, so much of the art of this, you know, I took the, um, I was doing a story on Robert McKee, and many years ago I took his fabled story structure class, and it had all kinds of disclaimers in it. You know, McKee is a brilliant man. But I, I still came away rather depressed that, you know, he thought of commercial cinema and, and most cinema nowadays is commercial cinema, even, even the Indies. Uh, he really thought about it as, as sort of from the outside in. You need your initiating incident. You need to change certain values from scene to scene. You need an, uh, an act structure. And of course, a lot of people were, were you know, uh, novice screenwriters who were there, but also a lot of studio executives. As has been said, you know, that a lot of them were applying Robert McKee like a cudgel to scripts that were coming in. And, uh, and, and again, it's, it's the art of concealment, making you think you're seeing something new. Even though when it's all over, you can, you can uh, do an outline, quite an easy outline.
3: Um, Gorman, I'm just interested in getting uh, my favorite film, Grumpy Curmudgeons, <laughs> view of – I mean, wh- how did you feel walking out of boyhood?
4: I, uh, I mean, I, I felt after, – after watching a screener, you mean. Yes. Uh Yeah. Um, I, I <laughs> felt that it was a little long and meandering. Uh, I basically felt that it was an idea – I think that any independent filmmaker who had seen the Michael Apted series – there are probably 500 of us who have thought, wow, that would be really cool to do as a, uh, you know with actors, but we could never find actors with our budgets that would that we knew we could trust you know, to go along for that many years. Link letter can. Uh, and I th- you know I, th- I just think that it, 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 it lacked it, to me it lacked a lot of structure. Um, I found it a little bit on the meandering side. I mean, I thought it was good. It was interesting watching the kid age. I, but I, I didn't walk away from it saying this is you know a great movie or even one of the best movies of the year. And, Let me say just
6: yeah, a word against sure. Michael Apted here. But, uh, I mean, <clears throat> whose whose work I admire very much. But over the years, a number of his subjects have come forward and say that said that he ha- is distorting somewhat their trajectory, because he has a very class-based bias, and his films are making a point about the lack of mobility in British society. So there's, a, there's kind of a strong narrative that he's imposed on the Up series that, once again, you're not necessarily aware of as you're watching. Um, I understand the feeling that, that Boyhood you know, may, may seem a little meandering. I actually think it's, um, it's actually much more focused, than uh, than it may first appear. Part of part of its art is making it seem as if it's artless.
3: You know, um, Brian Slattery. I'm wondering also. I wish I could state Heisenberg's principle right now, but I know that it has something to do with what if you do one thing, then you lose track of the other thing. So, and I'm wondering whether that's kind of true in terms of what we're saying. That you know, I mean, if you think about boyhood, it's essentially what you novelists would call a bildungsroman, right? It's a, it's just yeah. a, it's a story about growing up. But because of technique, because in fact, um, uh, Linklater's is using this kind of unusual, very unusual technique. Um, maybe there isn't the kind of narrative tightness that Gorman would like. To to see. And, and I wonder if that's kind of true generally. You know, that, that if you're going to do something explosively different, if you're going to be John Cage, if you're going to be, I mean, pick somebody in some, some genre, somehow or other, you know, the, the impulse to be explosively different at the level of form and technique maybe takes you away from some of the narrative conventions that, that make either a song lyric uh, or a movie or, or a painting more comfortable for,
1: for the audience. I think that you know whether whether that needs to be true that certainly kind of does seem to be true right that the you know the, the the people who push at the edges of the form tend to also make something that strikes other people as like not as tight as it could be I mean there there's so many examples of that you know in in you know uh, books and film and 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 music you know that that, that the people who are really struggling with the question um, you know, to some extent you could describe them as kind of forgetting to do their homework, right? Like they don't do some of the basic things that people expect books and movies and music to do, you know, because their eyes on something else, you know, they are, they're, they're trying to get at something, you know, like a, a, a little bit different than what people are usually trying to get at. And, you know, like, I, I mean, Richard Linklater is kind of a good example. I mean, cause I think that it, I was talking to someone about Boyhood this week. I've, I've, I've found the movie to be very sweet. Um, you know but the person i was talking to didn't didn't like it very much and when, you know one of the things that he said was you know he'd, he it's very difficult to relate to the character especially the central character who seems very kind of shapeless you know which is in, in some sense true but but I think that that's true of a lot of Linklater's movies. You know, he he doesn't he doesn't put a lot of work into like trying to make you like his characters. He's he's usually doing something else.
3: You know, David, I'm going to let you have what will probably be the last word here. But it seems to me one of the things we're talking about also is the small group of artists in any genre who are trying to find this sweet spot. I mean, there's always an avant-garde, and that avant-garde is always pushing the boundaries and not really worrying too much about commercial success. And then there's a mainstream, you know, that is uh, obsessed with commercial success and maybe not placing that higher uh, premium on creativity. And then there are people, I mean, you know, the Beatles came up before. The Beatles at the height of their creativity were working with the most avant-garde music techniques of the moment and sometimes with the most avant-garde musicians, but were wildly commercially successful. They'd brought their audience along w- with them. But it seems to me that what we're talking about in that case and maybe in this whole show is a pretty rare thing. The 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 artist who is trying to do something radically new while speaking to a mainstream audience.
6: Well, you have you have to you even within the avant-garde, so to speak, there are, there are two classes. I mean, there are some people who say that in order to break the rules, you have to master them. And that, that can, you know, sometimes that's true, sometimes that isn't true. Stravinsky and Schoenberg and, and the Beatles, who played covers in Hamburg for years, mastered the the pop song before they were able to take it in new directions. On the other hand, there are... Some artists who maybe create, maybe find their form as they work. They, they kind of, you know, the thing takes its own organic shape. I think that's a lot more rare that those people connect with a major audience. You're more apt to find people who have mastered the form. They, they know what rules they're breaking as they're breaking it. They just don't do it blindly.
3: All right, we have to stop there. I mean, there's like a minute left, but none of these guys is a one minute question and answer. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to stop it there. I want to thank Josh Nilea for uh, coming up with the idea for the show. Also, Christopher Booker, Brian Francis Slattery, currently the editor of the, uh, for Arts and Culture of the New Haven Independent. Get his book, The Family Hightower. It's just like The Godfather, but totally different. Uh, Gorman Bouchard, uh, get on Kickstarter and see uh, his project to make a documentary about Lydia Lovelace, which is not the secret name of our producer, Lydia Brown. David Edelstein, uh, is America's greatest living film critic, and uh, he, of course, is a commentator for CBS Sunday Morning and New York Magazine and NPR's Fresh Air.
2: Okay, I've got it. You take the premise of boyhood, but you reverse it. The kid gets younger. Huh? Huh?
0: (sighs) That's the premise of The Curious Case of Benjamin Button.
2: So then we replace Brad Pitt with Gilbert Gottfried.
0: No.